Well, as we think about heaven, I think one of the tragic tendencies of our time is that we have, tend to have a very diminished view of what heaven will be like, and that this has enormous spiritual consequences. The kind of cultural uh, image of heaven that, that inhabits most of our minds is of a v- rather unexciting existence where we are sort of spiritually lobotomized angels uh, who have been called up to strum harps on, on clouds in an absent-minded way. I think that this failure of imagination has spiritual consequences because uh, so much of the Christian message has to do with promise. There is, uh, there is a promise that God will prevail over evil. There's promise that, that our heavenly reward is going to be worth all of the suffering and struggle of earth. And there's a promise that our, our, our earthly lives actually matter. The things we do really matter. And if you, if you have a view of heaven that is simply um, harp strumming on clouds, it's hard to know how that vision is going to sustain you through this life. If, if we live in this world of evil and suffering and beauty, and all that we have waiting for us is that kind of heaven, then that's not really much of a hope. It, it's hard to imagine that God would create such a beautiful world uh, and, and call us to endure through such incredible suffering if all that was waiting for us on the other side of death is, is, a, is, a, is an existence that, that is less than what we experience on earth. The promises of, of heaven are so large and significant that when our view of heaven shrivels, so does our hope, and then so does our lives on earth. If we fail to recognize that, that heaven is on the other side of death, if that, if that doesn't shape the way we live in our own lives on earth, we end up just um, entering into despair or spiritual autopilot, just going through the motions. Spirits and clouds and harps, I hope, will not cut it for you. It better not be enough, that hope, because uh, that is not the hope the Bible offers as we see this morning. Not even close. As we've read in in Revelation 21, there is a bigger picture that awaits. Most of our thoughts, these kind of cultural thoughts of the afterlife, of sort of our spirits escaping the prison house of our bodies um, and going and sort of living in this ethereal world, this is influenced far more by the philosophy of ancient Greece than of the Word of God as revealed in Jesus. The Bible does not describe disembodied spirits escaping the world to live in the clouds. As we've seen in the passage, the Bible describes a city, a renewed city, descending from heaven to the earth. It's not only that the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. There is discontinuity. Not everything is exactly the same. But what is described is not escape and rejection of the world as we know it, but embrace and renewal of the world as we know it. So what will heaven be like? Heaven will be like a renewal of the world that we live in. All that is good and beautiful, everything that draws our hearts, that awakens our longing, is, is because uh, it, it points to the beauty and the lastingness of God's creation, that he is not going to turn away from all that he has made in this incredible universe, but he is going to embrace and renew. 
If you think about it, if God had intended us for us to spend eternity in this uh, kind of either a spiritual oblivion or, or harp-strumming cloud existence, why would he have placed us in such a fascinating, beautiful, complex, majestic, created world if he was just going to throw it all away? No, what heaven will be like will be like earth renewed. Our earthly existence where there is no crying, no pain, no decay, no suffering, the beauty of the world augmented and magnified and renewed. This universal restoration, this embrace and renewal of the world has actually always been the plan. It's not a, a new thing that John recognizes in, in, the, in the revelation on the Isle of Patmos. You can read uh, Isaiah 65 has this beautiful section, and it is describing a new heavens and a new earth. So this has been something that the prophets foretold, and Jesus came to inaugurate in his first advent. So it has, it has everything to do with Christmas, the new heaven and the new earth. Because the, the world that Isaiah is proclaiming, that John is proclaiming here, this world is, is um, ushered in and brought about by the, by the Messiah that Isaiah is proclaiming, and that John is, is also proclaiming after his coming. Jesus, you think about what Jesus came to do as, as Messiah. He came to deal with sin and proclaim the coming kingdom. He actually came, his very coming, his very life, his teaching, his birth, death, resurrection, is actually a, a sign of the embrace and renewal of the created material world. If you think about Christmas, the incarnation of God, when, when God comes to inhabit a, a carbon-based life form with skin and bones, that is an embrace of the created order. And it even, even the birth of Christ testifies to God's desire to embrace the world that he has made. He embraces human flesh in his coming. You could say that the passage that we read this morning, behold, the dwelling place of, with, of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. That speaks about the second advent in our passage this morning, but it also speaks of the first advent of Jesus' first coming when Emmanuel, God with us, came to dwell with us. But it's not just Easter, it's also, uh, I mean, it's not just Christmas, it's also Easter that speaks to this embrace and renewal that is being described. Because so, just as, as Jesus seated on the throne says here, behold, I am making all things new, he is making all things new because he himself has been renewed and made new in the resurrection. And so, if Christmas speaks to the embrace of the created world, Easter speaks to the renewal of the created world, because Jesus, when he was resurrected, did not come back as a ghostly spirit, disembodied. The whole point of the resurrection is that he came back in his body, in the created flesh that he uh, inhabited when he was born. And so the whole logic and meaning of Jesus' incarnation, teaching, proclaiming the coming kingdom, his resurrection, all of this testifies to a glorious consummation to come in which the created world is swept up and destroyed? That would make no sense at all. That would be completely contrary to the whole direction of Jesus. No, but 
The consummation is when the created world is transformed by God's glorious power into what it was supposed to be from the beginning, before sin and corruption and death and decay entered into the picture. And so heaven, what will it be like? It will not be a diminished existence. It will not be less than our experience on earth. It will be our experience on earth magnified, augmented, restored, and renewed. This embrace and renewal that is described in our passage where Jesus says uh, where God will come to dwell in the midst of his people and where God renews all things That has been the plan from the beginning, and its climax is in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of the very Son of God. And it began in that first advent, and it will be completed in the second advent. It began in Jesus' first coming, and it will be completed in his second coming. So the first thing we need to always remind ourselves of, what will heaven be like? Heaven will be the renewal and the restoration of all the world, and the universe that we know. We will not escape and reject. It is rather God will embrace and renew the world we know. So, first, heaven is a renewal. But secondly, I think, what will it be like? I think our passage tells us that it will be a relational experience, a deeply relational experience. A lot of times in our world, um, if we're not infected by by, uh, ancient Greek philosophy, we're we're, uh, uh, affected by kind of Eastern philosophy, which posits a kind of um, disappearance into oblivion, where we just just fall into the ocean of being that is the universe. But this passage here describes all kinds of not only complexity of, of the earth and heaven being renewed, but it's also almost entirely relational in its descriptions. Did you notice how the new Jerusalem is described? As it comes down out of heaven, it is prepared as a bride adorned for, for her husband. Isn't that an interesting way to describe a city? The city is like a bride. And then in verse 3, we read that God will dwell with man and we will be his people. And the image is here of a, the tabernacle in the midst of the city of Jerusalem where God's dwelling place is actually physically located within the, the circle of the, of the society, of the community. And so it's relational language again because God is living right in the middle and he is doing that so, in verse 4, he can wipe away the tears from our eyes to comfort us, to secure, and to heal. And then in verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. We have relational language again. So we have this language of, of bride and then community, society, and then son, marriage, community, family. Why these images? Well, now I want you to think back to those longings that we talked about at the very beginning. These longings for intimacy and friendship and community and family connection. It's almost as though God is is subtly saying in this passage, as he's describing the new world that he will bring, He is saying these deep longings you have for intimacy, for community, for family, I know that you need these things. And I know that in your current existence, they are not what you want them to be. But I will provide them for you. The city is going to be like a bride. The the city is going to be a community. And, And our relationships will be as family, sons of the Father, brothers and sisters of one another in the new heavens and the new earth. So just as our 
relation, uh, just as the world is going to be restored, just as the universe will be made new, and just as our relationship with God is restored, as we see him face to face, so our horizontal relationships and those deep longings we have there will be not diminished. They will finally be what we have always longed for them to be in the new heavens and the new earth. A few years ago, there was a best-selling book by a well-known pastor entitled Your Best Life Now, and I hope that is clear to you that uh, the message of the Bible is that for those who are in Christ, your best life is not now. Your best life is later. And if we uh, give ourselves over to the thought that our best life is now, then we will give in to despair and hopelessness, and, and think the earth will need to matter so much to us. But if you know that your best life is not now, but later, that's actually liberating good news, because it means you don't, you don't have to have everything perfectly in life. You don't have to have the perfect Christmas. You can be set free from that anxiety. You don't have to have the perfect marriage. You don't have to live in the perfect neighborhood. You don't have to have the perfect family. Even though these things are important and we have longings for them, we're never going to have them here on earth, but we will have them at the marriage feast of the Lamb in the New Jerusalem when the family of God is brought together finally and forever. So this bride and city and son image speaks to those deep longings for relationship that will be brought to fruition in that day. If you look to the world to fulfill these longings, the world's offering is all you will get. And so we'll put enormous pressure on our spouses <laughs> to fill longings that only God can fill. We'll put enormous pressure on our neighborhood. We have to live in the best neighborhood. We have to live in the best home. We'll put enormous pressure on our family to fulfill our needs when really these longings will only be met when God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. It is possible, and we see this at the end of the passage, it is possible that we would be distracted by the offerings of the world and miss out on their fulfillment. It concludes with sobering warnings of judgment for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. What do we make of this? How do, we, how do we understand this with all of the good, exciting, um, energizing promise? What do we do with this frightening language? Well, three quick things to say about this. If verse 4 is true, where we are promised that every tear will be wiped away and death shall be no more and there will be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore, if that's going to be true, then verse 8 the conclusion has to be true as well. You can't have verse 4 without verse 8, because the things described here, murder, idolatry, deception, these are the very things that cause mourning, crying, sadness, pain, and death. So you can't have a new heavens and a new earth. You can't embrace and renew the world without rejecting and destroying all the things that destroy that world. And this is exactly what God promises to do. When he renews the world, he will do away with the things that are the reason that cause the tears that he is wiping away. The passage describes these things not uh, conceptually, like I just did, but as people, right? And this is, this is the second point. He doesn't say uh, cowardliness in general will be done away. He says 
cowards, faithless people will be uh, sent to destruction. So what do we do with that? Well, it reminds us, I think, that all of these things, cowardice, immorality, idolatry, they don't, they're not just concepts that float above us. They are things that become entwined into our hearts. They become wrapped around our identities, and we sometimes hold onto them so tightly that we will, we refuse to let them go. And if that trajectory is, is where we are heading in our lives, then that trajectory will continue into eternity. As C.S. Lewis has said, there's only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, and those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. So if we choose on earth, this makes our daily lives so, so incredibly significant because if we are constantly choosing a life away from God, in the end, that is what he will give us, a life away from him. But, and this is the third point, the reason these warnings are given to us, think about the whole context of this passage. The whole context is that he is warning us out of his grace and out of his love, and out of invitation. God is telling us of the seriousness of eternity and and lifting up the incredible promise of the inheritance so that we will recognize our thirst and recognize those longings because he says, listen to the promise in verse, what verse is it? Verse 5. He says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So if we are tapping into those longings, those deep longings we have, and recognizing where they will be fulfilled, not here on earth, but in heaven, Jesus is saying, I have life, and I'll offer, I'll give it to you for free. That is what Christmas is all about. The the beginning of of this journey towards the new heavens and the new earth. When God dwells with man, embracing the world he's made and making all things new. And so the longings we have this time of year can ultimately disappoint us if we are looking for them to be fulfilled uh, in, by what the world offers. Then we will get what the world gives. But they can not only disappoint us, they can also, they can point us. They can point us on to that home, true home, the lasting home, our eternal inheritance, where we find the one who can offer water of life without payment, who can provide eternal satisfaction in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, again, C.S. Lewis has written in Mere Christianity, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, they would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world the new heavens and the new earth. And if this is so, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country. Isn't that interesting? Keep alive the desire. (laughs) Don't crush it, numb it, but keep it alive. Keep alive that desire for my true country, which I shall not find after death. I must never, I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and help others to do the same. If we have this diminished view of heaven, then we're going to put all of our eggs on this, on this disappointing world. But if you remember those images of the perfect family table, <laughs> holiday table filled with perfectly good food, 
with the perfect parents, smiling at the perfect family, in the perfect neighborhood. It's coming. It is coming. It is not coming this Christmas. It's not coming at your table. (laughs) It's not coming this year. It's not coming even at this table, but it is coming because of this table. It's coming because of Jesus Christ, born, crucified, risen, and coming again. It's coming because in Jesus, God has promised and has begun an embrace and renewal of all of our existence. So it's coming. That's what Advent means. It means coming. And we have been invited, even this morning, to a foretaste at the family table. And the reason is so that we might press on. Keep those desires, keep that thirst, drawing us on to that other country, which is our true home, because it's coming. He is coming, and he's making all things new. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us see through the longings of our hearts and recognize how they are longings for your son. And when we turn to your son, we pray that you would offer us water of life without payment, that we would receive and drink and be satisfied. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.